0: From 11FS, I'm David Breer, and this is Fintech Insider News. Today, we bring you central banks join the extinction revolution, Amazon takes on India, and how to make your own wearables. All this and much, much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 319 of Fintech Insider. We're coming to you live from the 11FS offices in Devonshire Square, London. My name is David Breer, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Mr. Simon Taylor. How's it going?
1: Pretty well, thank you. My goodness, what a fintech week it's been. It's been fintech week in London.
0: I mean, I am tired. On, yeah. I don't know about you, but it's been uh, it's been reasonably relentless. It's just so many people filling up your glass while you've been talking to people. It's been quite nice. I
1: mean, that's a champagne problem.
0: It really is. It's a very
1: definition definitionable. It is. <laughs> you had a fun one though. Yeah, I, yeah. I haven't really been outside of the walls of the office much. I've seen the I've seen it happening, but had too much client work to do, and it's, that's actually been really, really fun and engaging. So lots more to come from us. Very
0: nice. I've been to I've been to the Lord Mayor's. House, which was fun. Ooh. I got invited round for tea. That was lovely. Uh, and then the mayor's office announcing some of the stuff that we're up to, which is which is kind of cool. So it's been been a fun one. Oh, and a panel at Innovate Finance, which was very entertaining. A troublemaker, I believe. I know the reputation precedes me as always. <laughs> All right, and as always, we're not alone today. We're joined by some awesome, awesome guests. Uh, first up, we have Samantha Bedford, who is the head of innovation and new ways of working at Cybg. How's it going?
2: Very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me today.
0: No worries. Well, we're going to be gentle on your first time here, so uh, don't worry too much. um Another first time person. Well, not first time person in the room because you've been along before to, to watch one of these go down, haven't you? So you sort of know what you're in for a little bit, haven't you? But uh, now we have Freddie Villas, who is the sales manager at Snowdrop Solutions. How's it going?
3: Hello there. Yeah, good. Thank you very much for having me. Is
0: it is it different being like behind the mic as opposed to like in the corner of the it's room? Much better being yeah? behind the mic. Yeah. Is it all yeah. right? Well, uh, we'll see how you get on. I do <laughs> Uh, And uh, back my popular public demand. We took a vote. They Ted, you should come back. Uh, Mr. Oscar Williams-Groote, Groot, is a senior city correspondent at Yahoo Finance. How's it going, Oscar?
4: Yeah, very good, thanks. I, too, am pretty tired, but, uh, yeah, I'm feeling re-energized already, so looking forward to it. I
0: mean, you must have been to more of the parties than I had, and, like you actually had to be there for like work reasons. <laughs> I was just like walking around, you know, so, uh, but it's been a good one, right?
4: It's been very good. Yeah. It's always, always uh, fun to see how much bigger it gets every year and great to see the chancellor at the conference on Monday, uh, Tuesday, and also Mark Carney, all these big names coming out to support fintech. So yeah, it can only be a good thing, really.
0: It's funny, isn't it? It feels like, um, you know, fintech's like now a thing. You know, it's like, it used to be this cool thing. We were like, like you know, hipsters of fintech type thing. Now Mark Carney's getting down with this <laughs> thing. So uh, we'll have to move on to the next thing, insure tech, I think Sarah says, right?
4: Yeah, well, I'm sure they'll be onto that quick as well. They love, you know, they love, I think they were talking about reg tech as well and all sorts of things, AI very yeah, they're on the ball now they're all leading the buzzwords. It. all
0: like right some quantum throw it in indeed <laughs> all right let's get on with the show all right first up we have a new story which is central banks join the extinction revolution well only kind of i think here so fortune.com put this one out there so central banks are the world's newest climate change activists uh, so in a quote that they had, uh, which was an open letter signed by uh, Mr. Mark Carney, who we were just talking about a second ago, no country or community is immune. As financial policymakers and prudential advisors, we cannot ignore the obvious risks before our eyes. And um, there's been lots, I guess, in this in, in the news over the last uh, couple of weeks, really, that I think, you know, putting it scientifically, we're about buggered now, aren't we, from a, a climate <laughs> perspective. So um, really, you know, the, the sort of pressure is on us to do something about it before whatever we do is uh, actually not going to make any difference. What do you guys think? This is a deep and meaningful one to start FinTech Insider with, right?
4: Well, I think I think it's interesting that you see uh, central banks and companies taking the lead on this, because the sort of political impetus seems to have stalled with, you know, the US pulling out of the Paris Climate Accord and you know, the UK are talking about it this week, they've got this very aggressive plan to perhaps go zero emissions by 2050. But this idea of sort of corporate responsibility, and having it enforced by regulators, you know, that seems to be what's now taking the reins there.
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, corporates have... have have had CSR policies for many years now. So clean on the inside, and now it's time to think about getting clean on the outside. And there's actually um, a policy statement, um, uh, the enhancing banks and insurers approaching to managing the financial risk from climate change has actually been issued now, and it's going to become part of the uh, SMR uh, as well by October.
1: Which is the senior manager's regime, Mm -hmm. which is uh, what the FCA uses to ensure that the senior managers of a given bank Mm -hmm. are ensuring certain things are happening. So that they can lose their job and they can even end up in prison if something's gone wrong enough. So the, the, the real impact of not doing this in financial services is significant if you're a senior manager of a bank, which suggests... Hopefully, people will start to take this thing seriously. I mean, it does appear that way. Your point about the political in- impetus uh, there, uh, Oscar, was, was interesting. It's almost as if uh, in the UK, uh, we almost can't get out of our own way. Everything's kind of frozen because of Brexit. In the US, um, the political momentum has swung towards populism, uh, certainly with, with where power is at the moment. So you can't get something done. So the question is, where does the consumer go? And and where do where do people go? And and we've seen uh, with uh, you know kind of the recent activism in London, but you see it around the world. Increasingly, though, in the choices that consumers make every day, mm. not just it's not the demonstrations here; it's the choices they're making. Ethical is the new luxury. Ethical. If you think about Planet Organic, if you think about everything that is luxury, um, even the challenger banks. They stand out not because they've got a pink card or they're trendy or they're hipster. They stand out because of how ethical and transparent and how they communicate. And I think that's a real shift in, in mindset, in marketing, in, in branding, and in everything. But it, that's the, the carrot. You can win new business if you do this well. Mm. But the stick is, if you don't do this well, well we're pretty much all screwed. So that I think it's starting to to come together quite nicely. But this changing how it goes from investments and and seeing a, a central banker do it's really interesting.
4: I think it, just to pick on that point as well, it's interesting to see that you're coming. It, the pressure is coming from both sides in terms of today. We saw both the uh, no, sorry, yesterday the Bank of England was picketed by climate, climate change protesters. Today, Barclays AGM was picketed by climate change protesters. So that's probably more on the sort of left wing of the spectrum. But at the same time, you've got UBS coming out with these billionaire investor reports, and they're saying they're seeing the new generation of inherited wealth. Hmm. They're actually very interested in the ESG investment, and their advice, UBS's advice, is come up with ESG investment opportunities for these new generation who are inheriting the wealth, and they want to improve the world. And they're probably not going to be the left-wing people who are picketing mm. these AGMs.
0: I, I guess the, the challenge here, and to use some of the reasonably... Uh, obvious metaphors on this one, you know, you are talking about the frozen middle. Well, it's not going to be frozen for very long, is it? And, uh, and I guess is this stuff really like fundamentally just like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to actually what needs to be done? Because we're in a situation where actually is this enough? Like is this enough to actually stop the reasonably inevitable problems that we're kind of facing into? Because if it is purely a CSR thing, then, you know, most CSR stuff is there for Uh, looking good in the papers rather than actually fundamentally doing anything Um, and actually I do wonder is you know the the banks are in a bit of a rock and a hard place and actually most governments are in a rock and a hard place because most people think somebody needs to do something about this and most of those people don't think they should do something about this and that's that's the problem right you know we're we're in a space where everybody thinks it's somebody else's responsibility and until a government makes it mandatory that actually we're fundamentally going to change these things and that can't be with the u.s walking away from the table or you know china pumping all sorts of stuff out in all sorts of places then you know i can recycle as many bottles as you like Mm -hmm. Make bugger all different yeah
1: there are are certain things that create tipping points and, and momentum it's interesting uh oscar you mentioned esg uh, environmental sustainability and governance has become a de facto way of measuring fund performance you see increasingly now the likes of nutmeg and scalable and a lot of these uh, investor platforms hargreaves lansdowne are measuring the performance of your fund in terms of how much co2 is this fund creating uh how much uh, you know kind of is this uh, ethical and and sustainable are farmers who are providing the goods underneath this and the supply chain being treated correctly but that's kind of fine in terms of how a company performs and how it treats people. But if that company is pumping a load of oil, it doesn't matter how nice they are to, the, to their employees. Like, impact is the important thing. Like, what are you actually producing? So increasingly, you're seeing that shift. And I've looked up a number of studies that suggest that there's a no, now emerging evidence that over a three- to five-year period, um, sustainable and impact-based funds outperform the market. So impact is not just something that is good in, for the planet. It's good for your wallet. Why wouldn't you do this? Mm. Why would you not move in this direction? There are consequences to not doing it in terms of the senior management regime. There are consequences in terms of we might go extinct. Um, and then let's remember there's real opportunity here in terms of engaging your customer, engaging the brand, but also actually selling more stuff.
2: Absolutely. And I think another consequence uh, is likely to be what consumers will start to do as well and start to vote with their feet as more people, as more institutions become more vocal about what it is that they're doing. So so I think that that's another consideration too. It's it's going to be an interesting
0: one because I guess many of these things end up, you know, that's an interesting point because many of these things end up uh, being, you know, planet organic, I end up spending like fifteen pounds for a cup of coffee type thing. But I feel like I'm doing good. For yeah. I can kind of like the whole it, food, whole luxury. paycheck. Thing. I know, it, it, pretty thing. much. Yeah, it's the new luxury. So interesting that actually in that instance, you're, you know, you're saying it's it's better and better. Yes. You know, like so why would you not type thing? But um, you know, like do do you? We're taking this down to a very local level. But do you like, do you guys all recycle? Like, I oh, yeah. hate food bins, but like I'm all I'm all good for recycling. Do makes you guys? Mean, I buy
2: recycled clothing wherever I can do absolutely my handbags recycled I I, yeah absolutely I try to do whatever I can to be sustainable and have done for years
3: what about you Freddie make my own coffee every morning recyclable cup that's my uh
0: my step and it's it's small you know it's things like that that actually start actually being the things that kind of add up doesn't it but I I do wonder with that where if it costs slightly more will people think that it's a choice they should make because there's so many people who don't have that you know we're lucky you know we've got the luxury of of choice and uh, optionality and 15 pound cups of coffee you know like but actually most people don't and therefore is... is it something that they can choose to do or is it something that actually the again the you know, it's like my children would choose to have sweets every day, but as parents, we choose for them not to. But this is why.
1: This is why how money flows is so important. Because if you look at sixty five percent of the investment market, in other words, sixty five percent of all of the shares, all of the bonds that are bought in the markets are bought by either um, forty five. Sorry, uh, either retail, so you and me or pension funds. So it's about 45% retail and 20% pension funds. 65% of that investment market is retail. If consumers, and it appears increasingly so, really care about this stuff, there's an ability to connect to the fact that they care. Like, do you know what your pension is invested in? Does anybody around the table know that that the opt in pension, or sorry, the the default pension that you have as part of your company scheme, where's that fund going and how ethical are those investments? Because if you knew, I imagine a lot would move. And if a lot moved, imagine what that would mean. Um, And so that's where I think from a fintech perspective, how do you connect that to the everyday spend? So, like, when I go buy my coffee, like, or buy something at Pret or whatever, I get them real-time notifications from modern apps, but wouldn't it be great if it said, oh, you know, you've also rounded up 55p and that's enough to plant two trees, well done. Like, there's little things in terms of engagement like that and saving for the future we could do that could be really, really interesting. Um, But that data, all of our money is there and it's, it's not being used in these ways. So I think that's a giant opportunity that we're missing to engage people with money they've already got saved that's not doing what they want it to do.
2: Yeah, it's almost the creation of a different currency, yeah. isn't it? So you start to think about the the, the value very differently just a point I wanted to make as you were talking about the coffee etc I think the, the high street is always a really interesting barometer of what's happening so if you look at some of the the the, you know very accessible fashion stores out there they are starting to do quite significant lines of recycled upcycled um, clothing now so I think watch this space in terms of it really tipping into uh you know the the mainstream the everyday sort of salaries and that
1: fast fashion is such a carbon generator um the uh Cows as well. You know, the fact that we eat red meat is such a CO2 generator. There are certain things behaviorally that we do as a society that actually these tiny things so nudges and defaults. I think thinking about behavioral economics is going to be really interesting. And that's where I get interested from a, from a consumer brand standpoint. If I've already got my sort of fintech and my banking app that's rounding up money from everything I'm spending what else could i do with that that really excites me if i'm sitting inside of a financial services company thinking what do i need to build next
3: and i think as as these topics become more and more entrenched in the in the sort of public psyche then then those those things will become more important to people and it will naturally drive the market that way what what worries me is that the the banks and the governments are always going to be sort of reactive to these issues and and i i only hope that with the change in public opinion they'll they'll start to be a bit more proactive in the steps that they're taking we will see right uh, i guess Well, I think from the study I saw, we've got
0: twelve years to find out if we do something or not, and then it's basically then it's run away forever, and we're basically screwed. I mean, good luck, kids. Let's see what happens. All right, moving on. All right, uh, next story that we have up uh, is open banking one year on. So everyone in Finextra this year, has open banking actually changed anything in the 15 months since it's been out there? Uh, so the open banking implementation entity reveals to Finextra that it currently has 118 regulated organizations in their open banking ecosystem and 200 firms waiting to join it. So this is uh, in addition to the nine mandated banks, also known as the CMA nine for all of you cool kids out there and uh, there are 40 banks using the open banking standard um what do you guys think uh open banking has it sort of really lived up to the hype yet or are we sort of still waiting for that uh, really sort of killer thing to come through and make it uh, all worth the, the while
4: i think it's probably a bit too early to say um and also i think when open banking is a success is when we're not talking about open banking i always remember with fintech uh one of my friends, who was totally unrelated to finance, said, Have you heard of Monzo? just when maybe a sort of eight months or something after they'd launched. And I was like, this is what I write about. This is my job. <laughs> yeah. Have you not read anything yeah. I write? Yeah. But that was, that was when I sort of realized it was going over the top. Yeah. And this was a real thing, is that it was touching people outside of the sort of bubble. You know, we talked about the bubble we're in, all that sort mm. of thing.
2: I think, uh, firstly, hallelujah, that uh, finally uh, the OBIE is saying, you know, customers don't need to think about open banking any more than they need to think about how the internet works. Mm. Um, so so fantastic for that because I think it becomes a, a, a red herring. Yeah. Um, I think that um, certainly we think about open banking. It's it's we think about propositions first, and then open banking as as an enabler to achieve those uh, those propositions. So I I would imagine that that's what's going on uh, for a lot of us. Um, in the sector, um, and I think that um, that's just it, right? Nobody's publishing it. Everybody's getting on with it, and I think um, until there are some things that we can point to, and the customers out there can see that real utility, then it, watch this space, right? I think it, it's just going to be phenomenal. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think there's no doubt, you know, APIs and the uh, ability to sort of create services off the back of those are going to be something, and the fact that so many different organisations are actually in on this now, something is going to come from this, but. Like you say, maybe we're sort of in the middle of the process of making it happen, right? What do you think, Freddie?
3: I think there's a, there's a little bit of a, a lack of clarity with, with open banking data. Um, and I speak from my, my sort of niche perspective. Um, what we do is, is we clean and, and cleanse banking transaction data and provide some location information. Um, and I have banks asking me if they then need to propagate that information out through the through the Open Banking Service. And I think that lack of clarity in the, the race to sort of come up with these innovative products um, is leading to some, some maybe gray areas within it. I, I hope um, – I know many banks we've sort of talked to over the last couple of years
0: on this one of – um, a few of them, not to name any names, have definitely seen it purely as a regulatory thing. Mm-hmm. You know, there is a, a mandated thing to do that. And that's not everybody – Uh, But definitely there are some that uh, are still sort of seeing this as a more of a regulatory obligation than actually an opportunity to do something interesting. But turning that around on you, if it's not a regulatory
1: um, mandate, what is it then? I mean, if I'm in the SME sector or if I'm in retail, what, what, what do you say back to them in that situation?
0: I mean, just because you have to do something doesn't mean you can't benefit from it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think from my perspective, it's essentially being in a situation where um, you've got into a situation where if actually these things had happened, then and actually the ecosystem that needed to be created and the innovation that needed to be created had been, the regulator wouldn't have to mandate it. Mm-hmm. You know, if we all looked after the planet, then actually we wouldn't have to be being told to look after the planet. Um, So, you know, being in a a situation where actually these things now have been mandated, actually, I think any situation where you're using regulation as the lowest sort of bar of what happens, that's going to be a problem. Um, so with what you've been asked to do, I'd start looking forwards to go, well, how do we really embrace an ecosystem of new customers, which are developers and engineers who can start creating amazing capability that I've never been able to do before? Uh, how can you use that to really challenge my internal IT who are telling me this isn't possible, but, you know, 15 people in shortage seem to be able to make this thing happen? Um, all of these things, I think, are real big opportunities. It's maybe just how you look at them. Mm, interesting. I mean, what are your thoughts
1: on that for the rest of the guys? Are there opportunities there? And what are you seeing as those opportunities? Because we started sort of with account aggregation. And now we're starting to get into strong customer authentication and the payment side. Is it is account aggregation it? Is it somebody's going to do a payment on behalf of somebody else? Like, what, what does that actually look like in your mind? Have you seen anything out there?
4: I don't know. I mean, the way I think about it, it going back to the, the sort of invisible aspect, I think it's... Probably going to end up being like we have now with the netflix'es and the spotifys things that you wouldn 't even necessarily think about that these technologies in or you wouldn 't have thought about sorry around two thousand with a dot com bubble when everything was just like let 's put dot com after it and right. you know we can sell dog food on the internet you know things become a lot more complex and it 's the layers upon layers of complexity that just sort of they build up over time they build up over time and I think That's probably where it's going to become interesting when we stop talking about open banking and you realise that this infrastructure has allowed things that weren't even possible maybe... Five years ago, anything. So
1: Jason always talks about end-to-end journeys. Um, This is the idea that, uh, you know, if you're getting your favorite ride-hailing app, um, let's just take the example of Uber, but there are many others. Uh, You don't think, oh, my phone's talking to its GPS API so that it can talk to Google Maps so it can plot my location relative to the car's location so that I can get into the car so that then when I get to the other side, it's going to use an API from Braintree to automatically pull the payments. I just think... God, that was easier than um, calling a dispatch mm. who said, oh, the taxi's just coming up your street, honestly. Um, and then they don't turn up for 15 minutes, and then they're just around the corner, honestly. And I've, I've had to look for the number to call them, and then I get in, and then I've got to go to the cash. It just solved a problem for me. I didn't think, God, it's good that those APIs in that cloud was there. <laughs> or when you're watching Netflix, you don't go, thank goodness for um, Amazon Web Services. Like, th- th- I mean, I do a little bit, but that's, uh, <laughs> that says more just, about you. It does, yeah. But does, <laughs> I, does, yeah.
4: I wonder if the most powerful innovations are going to be ones that don't come from financial companies. Cause you think about Uber, Uber isn't, they don't think of themselves as a transportation company. They think of themselves as a tech company. And just thinking about the possibilities of open banking, you know, if I'm in Deliveroo and I'm thinking about placing an order, maybe I'm like, how much is my bank balance? Have a look. Wouldn't it be handy to have that in the app rather than having to go out of the app context? Yeah, exactly.
2: I think what's going to be really interesting is how a customer's going to respond to this. Um, you know, the, the, the connection to their banking data. Um, you know, we've all grown up with; we're very comfortable with connecting to Facebook, et al, but there's nothing to do with our finances there. So, how a customer's going to feel about that? All of a sudden, there's implicit trust. Of course, it's my it's my bank that's kind of enabling that. But do, do mm, what's going to happen there? Do I want to share that? Um, it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out.
1: So imagine if it was, I'm moving house and I want to move all of my bills and name and address with all of those. And my bank has some service because it has that it's updated my address. It knows who I am and it's going to update it everywhere else, including at the bank. And there's uh, like, there's little things like that that you mm. can start to do Absolutely. where it's like, is that useful? And I'm not thinking, um, oh, is it scary that they've got my data? It's like, is that useful to me? Like they'll take the convenience.
2: Yes, absolutely. I think it all plays into the, the, the utility, of course. Um, we are, um, about to go live with some utility switching where, we're um, we are sharing some, some data across, um, and that will be really interesting to see, you know, to take that baby step into, I think there's two points there. One is, um, can we go into that space? Are customers comfortable with us? Do we have permission to go into a completely non banking space? Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, you know, around consent. So this is going to be a first real test post GDPR of how customers are going to uh, respond to that as well.
0: I think it's going to be fascinating, isn't it? And like I say, it's it's not going to be a. And here's a thousand things you can do. It's it's really about incrementally bringing new functionality forward. But this, you know, this opens up so much more uh, opportunity to serve customer needs, and actually to open up opportunities from a revenue perspective as well. You know, this is again if you see it in that perspective as you guys do then this is an opportunity to do something interesting but um anyway like climate and you know like open banking we're like 25 minutes in already so like oh, we really it's should, should. It, it, it's about to get reg techy i mean it is it is all right next up we have a story over on fin extra so this is g first eight firms is confirmed that was hard to say. Um, so, Global Sandbox accepts its first eight firms. So, chaired by the UK's Financial Conduct Authority, the GFin, which I mean, just sounds gangster, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like, I know you ain't nothing but a yes, definitely nothing but a GFin baby. Uh, compromises twenty nine regulated bodies from across the world. So, in January, it put all uh, put out a call for all applications from banks and fintech companies interested in the fast track opportunities for authorization. Um, So the GFIN seeks to provide a more efficient way for innovative firms to interact with regulators, which sounds like a good thing, right? Uh, So the companies that they've been opening this up to, so they had 44 applications uh, they've opened it up to on Fido. Uh, interestingly, who was one of the first people in the uh, first tranche of the regulatory sandbox, actually, with the FCA as well. Uh, Tradle, we've got um, a Ascent RegTech Starling Trust, Alpha Point, and a few others as well. Uh, before we get into what we thought about this one, we thought we might want to talk to somebody who knows a little bit about this. So we talked to Chris Willard, who is the Director of Strategy and Competition
5: at the FCA. <laughs> In particular, one of the things uh, where we think there's still great scope for growth is around the international impact that can be had here. You know, one of the things we looked at when we first started this program was firms really wanting to grow to scale, not just domestically, but wanting to take their services internationally. Uh, So we've had a whole variety of things uh, that we've tried to do to help make that happen. Last year, I was here at the Guildhall talking about the idea of a global sandbox, Actually, we've been able to launch something called uh, the Global Financial Innovation Network. Initially, uh, around the turn of the year, we did that with 12 other regulators and partners. Uh, Today, we can announce that we're up to 35 different partners there, which is great. But more to the point, the practical proof of the pudding is, are we going to get firms test cross-jurisdiction? And today, we're announcing the first eight uh, that we're taking on to the pilot phase.
2: So, those eight, um, you're actually going to be helping them move into another market. Uh, can you give us any indication of who the firms are or where they might be going?
5: Yeah, so, so of the eight, um, uh, they're testing across 12 different jurisdictions. Mm-hmm. Um, the plan is, uh, the next phase of this is to help them develop a testing plan across all of those jurisdictions. Where So usually they're partnering with three or four other regulators. Right. So let's get something that's coordinated and works well. So, so rather uh, than
2: doing each thing individually with each regulator, having a sort of a, a triangular communication network. Yeah, a proper, a, 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 a proper yeah. plan
5: that works across all of them. Um, so that initial uh, eight firms, uh, we're publishing who they are today and in, in uh, okay. conjunction with our partners uh, across GFIN. Four of those are testing... Uh, with uh, the FCA as part of their tests.
2: So they're already up and running. <laughs>
5: uh, so they're, they're firms that are established and up and running. Uh, the tests themselves, obviously, but this is the phase where we work out exactly what the pilot will look like in all of those jurisdictions. But, it, but it's, I think, a really, really positive moment today.
2: And how long will that pilot phase run for, roughly?
5: So, again, we're trying new things here. Yeah, of course. This is, this is very much a learning exercise for everybody, including all the regulators involved. But I think the model we're broadly basing it on is the sandbox one, which is around a sort of six-month test. And then how do you evaluate that, feed that back? Um, You know, we will have partner regulators out there who don't have the same kind of ability to just move from a test straight into authorization. Mm -hmm. But we're we're going to try and overcome some of those those bumps in the road.
0: Super interesting. Uh, So this is in the same week that the FCA dropped the, was it the fifth uh, cohort from a sandbox perspective? I think it was like one of the biggest ones that they've actually brought together. Like, We've got to be kind of proud of what the FCA are doing here, right? I know we're, there's so many organizations that we talk to globally who are really trying to emulate everything that those guys are doing. So this is probably another way of trying to really cement the UK as like the, the leader in this space.
1: Certainly the policy leader. Uh, the, the sandbox is now a concept that is in many jurisdictions. The FCA has managed to gather a lot of those together um, and has now – built this, this thing that I think when it was initially conceived and announced I certainly heard some people going oh well that's just PR isn't it? No it's a real thing and it's live and it's up and running so hats off to them and within the context of Brexit this could be hugely powerful in time because there is the question about how do fintech talents uh, sell globally um, fintech companies that are based in London how do they go global? Well this is at least a part of a reasonable explanation about how that might start to happen and, and vice versa. How does inward investment from other jurisdictions come in again uh, the fca who now have a track record um, of interesting sort of uh policy positions supported of course by hmt and a lot of the uh, the policy bodies that work around them and uh and, and many others and the pra have got to a point where you can make a defensible argument for hey london is still a great place to do fintech and it has a lot of momentum behind it so i i welcome this and and hope to see more um It's always interesting, though, that these sandboxes, uh, like you look at an Onfido, you can point to one, I guess like a a company accelerator, you can point to a few real successes, um, but actually how much of it is the uh, kind of the regulators learning and how much of it is really helping these fintechs kind of grow, so I think there's there's possible there's still a long way in front of these before they can really start to jump.
0: I definitely think we, that's actually something we should go and do. You know, I yeah. think of you know five tranches in, like where are they now? <laughs> like that feels like a, quite an interesting one to do because like Onfido was in the first one, Bud was in the first mm-hmm. one. You know, there are companies out there who are having I've done some well, impact. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, we should probably do that. if, if at Oscar, if you haven't. <laughs> like, assignments of yeah, homework. Exactly, yeah. And by this time next week. Uh, yeah. But what do you guys think? Uh, how do you think this is going to pan out?
4: Well, I think it's interesting that um, Chris Willard mentioned there that companies are wanting to go global from day one, more or less, which I, I think is true. That's the sort of venture capital playbook, is they want things that are going to blow up in 10 years, but ideally even quicker mm. so that they can then sell out to get returns for their investors. And now that that's come to finance, we're seeing, you know, Revolut is the best example that just wanting to go global from day one and expanding rapidly. And so regulators really have to keep up with that. So. Yeah. Obviously, it's great that they're leading the way, but there's also a sense of they've got to do this. Otherwise, they're going to be left behind. Mm. And that also speaks to what you were saying just now in terms of it being a two-way street. They're learning as well. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's good that they're engaging with this community rather than, you know, perhaps in the U.S. The SEC is a bit more let people do stuff and then hit them afterwards with Rules is rules. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The UK is trying to meet people where they are and figure out what's going on and then say, actually, tone that down a bit. This is great. Keep doing that. So I think it's a very positive thing. And again, on the Brexit point, it is good that they're engaging globally so that they can lead the way, be involved in the conversation and help people expand. Philip Hammond was talking in his speech at Innovate Finance this week about a number of initiatives to try and help companies based in the UK to go to places like Hong Kong, Australia, Singapore. So it seems like there's a joined up thinking here across policymakers, and that's that's only a good thing, I would say.
1: And referred to sort of um, fintech as being one of the cornerstones of the economy, and, and it, it is increasingly becoming that way. Uh, it's interesting you mentioned the SEC, though, of course. Uh, the SEC has FinHub now, which is um, sort of uh, not a full-on sandbox, but it's certainly uh, a direct outreach. So I think even some of the bigger names in global regulatory bodies are starting to do this more and more. And I think we will see more of it because the FCA has proven that actually, by engaging with dialogue with these innovators both sides get value and i think that's the key takeaway here is both sides get value we have seen in the sandbox in the uk quite a lot of incumbents go in there Um, and actually that's a story that's getting missed here is the incumbent banks have as much arguably more to gain from this because the traditional route of doing innovation with your existing processes where you inherited policies from global policy owners, is really, really hard to deliver something genuinely novel um, because of all of the good reasons why it's hard to do things at scale, as it should be when you're dealing with millions of customers and their, their financial livelihoods. But if you're dealing with a lot less customers in a test and like a fintech is, then surely an incumbent should have the ability to innovate for its customers as well. So I think that's... A, a generally a, a good trend as well
0: well I, th- I think all the way around it's it's like how you allow people to push the boundaries from where they are like you say hsbc's been in there you know we were in there with NatWest, and yeah. there's various other place players that have used it as a way yeah. of kind of challenging some internal norms really which is a good thing
5: right
2: yeah and i think also this week of course we've seen the fintech alliance was was launched on on monday so thinking about how that sort of starts to bring the uk much more together and you know um, beyond London and really starting to build uh, a very ecocentric community as well uh, of, of fintech so I think that you know that's another exciting thing that's that's just started to happen and if you just cast your mind back just five years uh, FCA innovators was had a mere uh, two employees and um, uh, it's just phenomenal just to see that the the pace and the impact that this is having, mm. um, and I think as you said, just the, the learnings, just the benefit of those learnings that the incumbents can get out of this as well is priceless. Absolutely, so it's good to see that kind of adoption as well.
0: Hundred percent, yeah, completely agree. All right, that's probably enough on that one as well, isn't it? So uh, we will be back very very shortly.
2: This deal sets a path. This
5: economy okay. is. We need to, to get down yeah.
3: to
5: business. Clearly the pressure yeah. is Brexit. beginning. Business
2: Brexit. Brexit. <speaking>. to Business investment, jobs. Brexit by Brexit. 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 Brexit.
3: Brexit. 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 The more you hear about Brexit, the less clear
4: it all becomes. When everyone else is shouting, listen. For the clarity behind the headlines, subscribe to the Financial Times. Visit ft.com.
5: Calling all fintechs, banks, developers. Are you looking at ways to use new open APIs to create the next financial app? Are you looking to break into new markets, the USA in particular? Finastra and Microsoft are hosting the Fusion One Developer Conference in London on the 21st and 22nd of May, 2019, down at Tobacco Dock. Join this free open finance developer conference to upskill in open APIs Understand how you can tap into Finastra's 8000 strong client base with your apps and get hands-on technical walkthroughs with the platform and API experts. Register your place at Fusion 1 today online at Fusion1.cloud. Join the open banking revolution. Because, after all, we're all innovators.
0: welcome back to Fintech Insider from 11FS. Uh, we're going to be launching a very special Fintech Insider US series very shortly. Last month, uh, Mr. Sam Moore and team jetted off to New York from for uh, New York Fintech Week, where they met some of the biggest players over there in the US Fintech ecosystem. And what we're going to be doing, launching on the 15th of May, is bringing out Fintech Insider US. So this is season one. We'll run for six episodes and bring you all of the good people that Sam managed to talk to while he was out there. So people like Planned, City Ventures, Klarna, Empire Startups, and a bunch of other people that we found at FinTech Week. So set your watches, 15th of May, FinTech Insider US. All right, let's get on with the show. Okay, uh back up over on Yahoo Finance. So I'm guessing there's a guy who knows a lot about this one first up. Correct. is the Snoop effect. So this is Snoop Dogg backed try before you buy payment firm sees a pretty healthy jump in sales. All right. Take it from there, Oscar.
4: Yeah, this is Klarna, who are of course the uh Swedish payment unicorn backed by uh, Sequoia Capital, Silicon Valley, sort of gold standard. And their sales rose by 36% to $21.6 billion last year. So you can see why venture, venture capitalists are so excited about them. Revenue jumped 31% as well to $441 million. And the Snoop link is Snoop Dogg actually invested in them at the start of the year, which is... As unusual as it sounds, I don't think he's backed any other fintech businesses that I am aware of.
1: Although Jay Z backed uh, Robin Hood.
0: Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so is uh, like Snoop Dogg claiming like the actual uh, sales jump here based on like I don't know if you have you guys actually seen the the Dog. yeah the Smooth Dog <laughs> campaign very Would, strange it uh, like it was just an amazing thing so if if, if it it has allowed sales to jump by 36 percent because of that video it was like money well spent really wasn't it i I think if you're listening to this you are allowed to pause the podcast go to youtube
1: check out smooth dog it's worth it and then (laughs) when you're back let's continue this conversation after you know what smooth dog is it's fantastic and look Klarna, a really interesting business. That whole point of sales space is really interesting. They have a different proposition for their merchants. Um, You actually interviewed them about 10 episodes ago, 20 episodes ago. So if you scroll back um, through your your news feed, um, through the podcast feed of Fintech Insider, you'll find that interview. But they they partner with their merchants. So it used to very much be like payments was just the thing you did after you'd selected the product you wanted to buy. For Klarna, payments is... Well, actually, how do we help you, uh, the retailer, ASOS, um, uh, JD Sports, Arcadia Group, Topshop, Topman, how do we help those businesses um, sell more stuff, understand their customers better, build a loyalty scheme, reactivate them, but also solve this problem around delivery from e-commerce? Like Delivery around e-commerce is such a competitive advantage because the fact that I can have something and try it for 30 days and then send a load of it back it it basically takes the delivery risk out of it for the merchant perspective and from the user's perspective. And that's hugely popular. Um, So you can see why uh, merchants and uh, the likes of consumers absolutely love this thing.
0: Yeah, I think increasingly we're we're sort of losing the high street, right? So in that sort of physical digital sort of world, then this is is almost like payments sort of new age version right there's so many people that i'm sort of seeing that are actually using this as well so it's not just a you know a fancy marketing campaign and i think these guys are on a bit of a tear aren't they there's u.s expansion there's all sorts of things that they're sort of looking to do so it's um be interesting to see what happens next what
2: yeah and i think i think also um just the mirror to what you said there around um who would have thought that a payments company could be so front of mind for a customer as well? Uh, speaking to some teenagers, they're actually talking about Klarna and how they're using Klarna. And I think what's also really interesting is not taking the product focus, but the outcome for the customer, mm-hmm. letting them. I've seen those trainers. Yeah, you can buy them as well. So I think that um, that's really interesting. And as I, as we think about their competitors as well, I think it's in the space of sort of PayPal credit. Yep. Um, essentially as well so so that's going to be an interesting one and
1: a firm from max levchin who's ex paypal what's really interesting about um klarna is they talk about their customers on average um do 2.2x transactions with a retailer compared to their competitors so if you've just got a standard point of sale you'll get 1.1x returning customers versus 2.2 that's something from a merchant that's mm. absolutely phenomenal value when when they roll into you know um fashion merchant number one and say we're gonna to get this brand affinity from your users on your behalf. It's like, why wouldn't I work with you? But that sort of above-the-line consumer branding, we always saw You know, Visa spend a lot of money on, Mastercard spend a lot of money establishing their brand. Klarna are kind of doing that in an interesting way, and they've kind of gone for that uh, relationship with the customer in, in a completely different way. But it works, and it's an interesting thing. Like, if you're a traditional acquiring bank or acquirer or, or point-of-sale um, provider in any way, shape, or form, like Klarna are there, and they're a big threat on the horizon. Um, but what's interesting is they also have a banking license. So this is an organization that can see that relationship with their customers as being a lot more in time. So um, I suspect some of the valuations on this um, from their investors are not just around the business they're doing now, but the beachhead that gives them to be able to do many more things in the future.
4: And we, we talked about fashion a lot there I I spoke to Luke Griffiths, who's the UKMD, for this article, and it was quite interesting that he was saying they're moving into areas like electronics. Okay, you can see the appeal there. It's a big-ticket item. You want to make sure that it's the right one, potentially. But also interesting travel as well. He said they're working with Expedia, Mm. which is not a vertical I would have immediately associated with this type of offering. But it just shows that they're thinking very laterally about, to your point, what can they do with the customer relationship now that they've got the brand Maybe you'll see Klarna on Expedia and just think, oh, I've used that before. Yeah. I know that works. I can go with that.
1: So we've done a lot of um, consumer research for financial services in 11FS, and the top three things the under 35s want is more travel. Um, They want um, more convenience around fashion to have uh, clothing and electronics. (laughs) So Klarna's—they've read your research. (laughs) Klarna have clearly done their research. Um, Like solving for real jobs, though, it's like um, I want to make memories that last a lifetime. How can I? um, How can I ensure that I can? I, I never miss out. Um, these are the genuine anxieties of of consumers of that age, and Klarna have really understood the job that their product does. Mm-hmm. I think in a way that um, a lot of people, a lot of companies historically saw um, point of sale lending or um, the sort of point of sale. Um, terminals and transactions as being, we're here to make the payment happen. Klarna see themselves as, we're here to solve that customer's problem um, and to, to deal with their anxiety. They do really interesting things as well. Like when you get to the checkout in Klarna and you've bought something, they don't so, just sort of show you the invoice. So you're like, oh, it will arrive and that is my address and that is what I bought. They show you a picture of the product you have bought. So you create <laughs> an emotional response to that. Lots of design things they do that's really interesting.
4: And they're also just quickly on that point there... They're expanding into real world payments, I think. I spoke to, again, Luke Griffiths about this, and he he couldn't give me details, but he said the plan is, he was saying it's going to be quite interesting with how they partner with these real world players to deliver things. So I'd be fascinated to see what that looks like.
1: And PayPal um, and iZettle have had their um, sort of acquisition and M and A approved by the UK uh, competition watchdog as well. So PayPal are definitely not sleeping on this one. Mm-hmm. Um, Affirm are very large in the US um, and uh, you know kind of r- really going in that space. It, it's the uh, it's the incumbents in the acquiring space that I think have, have really got something to look at with Stripe and Adyen um, in the space. Uh, you know, like that that those organisations are very good at executing, understand their customer. Um, and have modern tech stacks and aren't encumbered by legacy. Uh, How
0: do you compete with that if you are? Um, it's an interesting question. I can't lie; I'm just disappointed we didn't talk about Snoop Dogg more. Um, <laughs> like, uh, I feel that like was a missed opportunity. Really, like my, my knowledge is there, but really, but uh, but we'll come back to it someday, I'm sure. All right, moving on. A story over on AltFi. So this is women are less aware and trusting of challenger banks. Uh, so digital banks have won over half of Brits, but women are being left behind. Apparently, so this is 53% of Brits would trust a digital bank. With their salary, uh, with Monzo leading in the mind share, so recognised by 49% of Brits, which I found astounding from mm-hmm. honest to you. Um, but awareness of every UK challenger is much lower among women. Uh, overall, a quarter of women, 25%, for those who don't know what a quarter is apparently, mm-hmm. uh, said that they have never heard of any of the challenger banks compared to 70% of men who said they have now this might be um men maybe just talking bollocks but um mm-hmm. you never know one, i know everything what do you think about this one do you think this is potentially the way in which those brands are marketing themselves and appealing to certain demographics or is this men just talking nonsense when it, when they respond <laughs> to a poll I think it's that. <laughs> I mean, we do that. <laughs> um, so interestingly, there was similar results across Europe with other uh, polls that were done when it came to a bit of an over-indexing. But again, that might just be to, um, to our shortcomings with not saying when we don't know something, right?
2: So what we see with our digital brand, B. um women just pip men in terms of the gender split. So it, it is 50.5% versus, of course, the, the remaining 495 So fascinating. And then when we look at digital adoption as well, the, the women just slightly pip, pip the men as well so i think there's probably something in what you said there and i don't need a map of course i don't need a map so (laughs) potentially i think also you've got to um maybe go down a level and look at the you know more deeply at the demographics as well um i think i think if you look at age um there's there's there was a global survey that was done at the start of this year forgive me i can't remember who by but it showed that looking at millennials um women actually uh we're making more digital payments than um the men as well, so I think it's too easy to take a broad brush approach. I think in terms of a of a marketing perspective, I think it's incumbent on any brand right to make sure that you're uh, appealing to to the different segments um, of your customers. I wonder, is there something in given that uh, many of the digital brands have grown through word of mouth, mm-hmm. is there something that's happened there? although you know FMCG brands have have always relied on you know uh, women to spread the word as well so so is there something that's changed there in the digital landscape mm. i don't know it's an interesting one
3: i think it's i, I work with a, a lot of digital banks that are, are just starting up so they're just going through those very very early phases and the the general story I hear across across those customers is that the ad- early adoption tends to be men across all of them. So it's it's really refreshing to hear you say that in your case that that is um, that is women. Um, but one thing I was going to mention was that I see you know digital banks as having an incredible ability to sweep up large market segments based on on how they position themselves. But what perhaps I, I don't want to see is a digital bank that's specifically targeting women. I think subtle changes to marketing is the way to go here, not um a sort of women only offering or, or anything down that route.
2: Yes, no pink please. No pink <laughs> please. <laughs> but <laughs> hot <laughs> corals <laughs> fine.
4: I mean yeah yeah. I mean
2: is, is Sheila's wheels still a thing? I I Sheila's
4: thought. wheels, wow.
2: Well <laughs> yes, Throwback. I mean it, insurance is an interesting parallel because of course we used to get uh cheaper cheaper premiums. Um but I, it's uh, terrible uh, of sexism, sexism and, in
0: the play there. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thankfully those days are over now. But
0: it is really interesting. Like you say, it's the sort of, uh, you know, a bit of an echo chamber when it comes to word of mouth to a certain degree. So actually, I I wonder if there is something on there. But I think, um, you know, Starling, I know Mons are such a big sort of proponent of not being, uh, you know, the the sort of uh, more, you know, masculine-dominated, appealing solely to men. Um, So it's interesting to see if any of those brands really do sort of come out. It's like, particularly when you're looking at niches of audiences – There is nothing to stop people creating something that is specifically to a need, whether it's, uh, you know, running a household, which is predominantly uh, still a, a female minded thing um or whether it 's one of those ones where they 're appealing to a, a certain demographic of uh, the the younger male population but it's it 's an interesting one whether actually that's a that 's a thing that when you start getting to more mainstream adoption which where you know people like the monzos people like the Revolutes are are starting to get and whether that 's something that they start to see as a real inhibitor for their growth in the coming years you know it,
1: it could really be um but it 's interesting that story arc of how these digital banks are evolving and starting to serve the mass market. Um, Increasingly, uh, they... Uh, are pushing outside of the urban centers, into the suburbs, and a digital has become something that can be full service, can take more of your life. Um, and people always the question, ask the question, do I need a human? Which, of course, the answer is, yes, you do, but do they need to be in the room with you? Like, yes, I need a human, I need them to be accessible, but maybe they don't need to be standing in a building that's very expensive, they need to be available to me. And I think that's an interesting mindset shift that will help more
0: people get into digital. <laughs> So, we're just going to conclude that just men lie in surveys, then, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. We really need to own up to more stuff, don't we? Mm. I own up to, well,
1: yeah, I don't know.
4: Have I?
0: Uh- <laughs> well, Haley, if you're listening, <laughs> get in touch. <laughs> FinTech Insider. Uh All right, moving on. Uh, Over on FinExtra, uh, are EU being overcharged? So uh, MasterCard and Visa to slash interregional fees for tourists in the European Union. So MasterCard and Visa have agreed to cut interchange fees for payments made in Europe by cards issued elsewhere by an average of 40% following a EU antitrust investigation. So it's nice to know that they're doing this, you know, just freely off their own bats. No <laughs> words like antitrust investigation being bandied around. Uh, the two payment card schemes were berated by the EU's competition watchdog for applying higher inter- regional interchange fees, which is really difficult to say, for European retailers accepting payments from cards issued outside of the EEA. Uh, that is kind of scary i guess but it's one of these ones that i always sort of feel like people will probably just try and get away from with this stuff as long as they actually well, can right
1: i don't know about this because in markets where interchange is higher you tend to see a lot more cashback so is the is it is it a good thing necessarily the the what the interchange does not all, not in all cases um, but interchange if if you're not familiar with it is essentially when you go pay for something in a store, Um, between, in in Europe, it's about 0.3%, but in the US, it's closer to 2%. In a lot of Asia, it's about 2% of... of the transaction amount you've made uh, is paid by the merchant. So in other words, the shop uh, to the bank in for the cost of having made that payment. So you don't see that cost. The merchants baked it into everything they're selling you. Um, and in Europe, uh, there's a cap on interchange, So it was uh, introduced three or four years ago and it's about 0.3%. And Apple then came along and said, we'll have half of that. Thank you very much for every Apple pay payment. And the banks went, are you kidding me? And then they went, Oh, your Apple, I'll agree with you. Um, so the thing with this is in those markets like the US, like in Asia, you see cashbacks and incentives and rewards schemes being a lot more prevalent than they are in Europe. I- there are still there is still cashback here but it's about 0.5% if you're really lucky it's 1% and it's pure marketing cost whereas in the US you get up to the 2s and 3s and 4 percent for for certain merchant types so i don't know that it's it's all bad but you know uh, this is we've seen the you do this with antitrust on things like data roaming and actually from a consumer's perspective the the fact that i can use my UK plan anywhere in europe is a fantastic win so i can see why this is on on the side of the consumer
4: well, it's interesting. When you talk about the uh, differences in the reward schemes, I was reading something this morning about American Express cutting their rewards for consumers uh, in the UK. And I wonder if there's a link there with the fact that these interchange you know, the, the revenue have opportunities no are being cracked down on. So as you say, it's not necessarily just a win for the consumers. It's a more complex picture potentially. But in terms of debit cards, at least, it's definitely a win, I would say, because You would hope that this would lead to lower prices, but... Again, you never know that these things aren't always passed on to the consumer.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's the thing. If the if the revenue, you know, the profit that's being made from these things has been kept potentially artificially high because you can, because there isn't competition. These are the areas that you know people like the FCA, people like the uh, the European Union, definitely sort of step into. And with everything that's happened over the last you know ten plus years, like competition is the thing that fuels a better outcome for consumers. And you know, arguably. Visa and Mastercard kind of are playing with each other, it's and that's a it. It's yeah. A so you know, I, I think I'm not sure necessarily this is going to lead to. You know, given the amount of infrastructure, given the amount of investment that would be required to have a third party in that uh, in that mix, and whether even at that stage would that whether that would really breed the competition that was required, you know, I don't think that's going to be what we see. But maybe this is just a um, you know, this is the the sort of um, European Commission's essentially just going you know, don't take the piss, boys, yeah, basically. Yeah.
1: The, <laughs> the big winner here is the big regional merchants who do see a lot of tourism spend. So if I'm um, somebody that's uh, you know sort of uh, harrods in london i would probably see a lot of people traveling from europe spending in my store Uh, as a result of this rule if they used visa and mastercard i now have to pay less to the banks as a result of it that's the obvious winner i don't know that the consumer wins massively out of this because i I, will the merchants really pass that on or will they see that as a nice little shot in the eye
2: yeah i think that's a big question um last year of course we saw um just eat um in in the uk um, in the ban on surcharges that they had um, they'd put in place, and then they've added 50p to every order um, to make up for that. So, so what will happen um, in this case? I guess we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I think there's also something in transparency for the customers as yeah. well. And that I think it's important in this day and age to be clear about how you're making your money, right? Mm, And that there are costs associated, of course, risk or or, all the rest of the good stuff, but how much of it Uh, is covering those extra costs. And
1: I think to respect your customer to understand that they know you're you're a profit-making entity. They know you're in business to make profit and reward your shareholders. But if your product is really good, they sort of don't mind and they'd really like you to be a bit more honest and transparent in the process. And I think this is why transparency and ethical is the new luxury
4: i think also it's interesting looking at it from a different perspective this is uh, margaret vestega who is the eu competition commissioner who's bought this action as well and she's been really swashbuckling in oh good word
1: <laughs> swap the <a> headline
4: <laughs> in going after the sort of uh, <laughs> tech or tech enabled businesses trying to find the perhaps hidden costs or hidden both, well, both financial or societal or whatever, you know, she's hit Google with huge fines, Apple with huge fines. And it's interesting to see it now catch up with the likes of this, the, uh, the Visa and MasterCard, rather than perhaps the big tech players.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, I think to your point, Simon, we know these organizations are there to make money. We just, as, as you say, we really want this to be a, a thing where it's fair. Uh, I don't think anybody minds people sort of like being a business and being profitable. It's again, it's just not taking the piss to a certain and, degree. And,
1: and we've seen the challengers do this well, um, where they, you know, they, they sort of tell you what the problem is and tell you the process they went to fix it whereas I fear for a lot of corporates that have been around for 50 60 70 years they default to that sort of PR speak and nothing to see here nothing this, it's all fine keep calm and carry on and actually transparency increasingly is a competitive advantage and it's a it's a brand differentiator and it, it, there's a humanity that people are looking for from these things and again there's an opportunity to do that I think within your brand
0: I think your you know your revenue model is always the hardest drug to get off right and it, especially in a market where nobody else is doing it and in this space because there's so little competition and so little disruption then actually maybe it just takes the the regulator the you know to be the referee in this one so indeed all right Uh, and finally over on Finextra we have a man dissolves (laughs) a credit card to make a contactless ring which is probably a string of words I never thought I would all say together. So um, apparently making your own wearables has been come, become a thing that people are really getting into. So uh, one handyman decided to opt in for this little uh, escapade by dissolving his credit card and putting the uh, NFC chip that he managed to get, so the RFID chip, uh, into a homemade resin wow. ring, which sounds like a lot of work. I'm not gonna lie. Like, I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. When they first did start putting um, RFID chips into stuff, I did like tear down a. I did do this, which is quite sad. <laughs> what you created? Is this about you, ring? This story. I didn't create a ring, but I did put it in a nail polish remover to separate the two pieces of plastic and remove the, I like everybody's giving me faces in the room right now, to, to separate the two pieces of plastic, which is essentially the cards, to remove the RFID, chip. Can we uh, change
1: your job title to CEO of 11FS and jewelry maker?
0: Just, <laughs> I just like to know how stuff works, okay? Um but um and it did work. I could still take the RFID chip and I was paying for the uh, being able to like pay for uh, the underground with that card. Uh, I'm just not fancy enough to have a 3D printer and put it in,
3: into a ring, so
1: But you know you can buy those, right? <laughs> I just like to know how things work, okay?
3: <laughs> well, I have I have trivia on this one actually. Um so did you know that the Uh, The smart chip was originally invented by uh, Roland Moreno in France in 1975, and his original concept for it was to be implanted into a signet ring. So it's nice that it's come full circle, so to speak.
0: Uh, it's a ring.
1: ring I
3: I, I I like
0: the fact that they just decided to put it to ring as well, because we we have seen quite a few of these starting to come to market a little bit. Uh,
1: There's a company called just... Ring that um, was on TechCrunch six months ago and had got a a lot of investment. For some reason, Silicon Valley VCs love things that are physical in uh, finance and tech. Um, but like, I don't. Mm, we'll see if that ever really takes off. I've seen these over the four or five years come and go, and they've not really taken off and been massive. But I kind of want to go the other way. Like, how extreme could you go with the jewelry here? Could Mister T have a contactless like <laughs> load of four who messes with my contactless gold?
0: I don't like being in a situation where I'm like. The idea of what I decide to be wearing that day means that I, you know, what I mean, like, I Can can't pay, yeah. yeah. I mean, I only wear my Mr. T jewelry once a week, <laughs> so like, it means I can't go out and buy stuff the what other four about times. What if you had contactless Jordans? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they're every day. If you could pay with your fee, yeah. you'd be fine. I
2: what? think it's fab that somebody's gone to the effort of actually putting the recipe up there, right? So if you're looking for something to do this bank holiday weekend, <laughs> there's a step-by-step guide. Yeah. Dissolve and I your just credit think card. it's it's marvellous. Just hop over to a nail bar. There's plenty of acetone in there. Exactly. Um, you know, <laughs> that's, it's,
0: that's, I, I now want to go to a nail
1: bar. There's yeah. plenty of acetone <laughs> you know, in just... Marketing slogan
0: <laughs> Uh, the amount of us who are going to be requesting replacement cards come tuesday morning when uh, when it all opens up again I'm sorry it, banks yeah. it, <laughs> no it it is fascinating though it's like you know embedding payment capability into things you know i think um I think rings are great, but like not like jewelry is fashion, so fashion goes out of. Fashion Mm. and therefore will you know like will you stop wearing that thing? Yeah, you know we've a lot of us got Apple watches on. You know, embedment in things that you wear all of the time, or even just embedment in you, Simon. uh Like (laughs) just putting it in your finger or your hand or
2: whatever. Definitely
1: get the like. I'd get some the RFID thing in my hand ejected.
2: Yeah, I think I think it's got to be aesthetically pleasing as well as the fashion point because Mm. you can have classic designs, of course, as well. But you know, it's got to be something that you're going to want to have uh, on on your person. But I think um, you know, if you just think about wearables generally as well, you, you know, you can get it in yoga pants, golf shirts, you name it, right? It's, I, I want to know what it, you, it's you out can't there. get it in. Yeah. Like, can I not
1: get it in a blow up shark? Can I not get it in like in why like a Why do you t- want it in a yeah. shark? <laughs> we,
0: we need to discuss this use case. Like. <laughs> <Yeah>. More <laughs> when, importantly, when you're at the beach, the more you're... importantly, why. Why would you not want it? Okay. I, I think um, I think we need to go way more practical. Like, if we're going to put it in rings, like put it in engagement rings and wedding rings, it's like access to funds. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's and like, like, and like, then your wedding yeah.
2: guests. Could, it's like, your towering. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think it makes it the whole thing way more strategic. You know, like. You can only get a joint account through it being embedded in a wedding ring. Like,
1: well, I mean, that would make provisioning it a lot easier, wouldn't it? I mean, KYC, it, yeah. makes, it makes that whole process <laughs> a, a lot more thorough, doesn't no, it? let no, it ring.
0: It does. Wait a minute. Indeed.
3: Yeah.
0: All right. <laughs> On that note, we really probably should wrap up this week's news show. Thank you for everybody who tuned into this. And thank you very much for our guests. So, Oscar, where can people find out more from you?
4: Uh, so yahoo finance uk or i'm on twitter oscar w groot which is spelled g-r-u-t very very good uh samantha where can people find uh, you more?
2: find me on linkedin samantha bedford
3: very very good Freddie. linkedin email Freddie at snowdropsolutions.co.uk
1: simon at sy taylor on twitter or simon at
0: 11fs.com if you want to bother me about things very good. And you can find me over on Twitter at David Breer. Uh, what do you think to today's show? I think I'm probably going to know. Uh, let us know over on Twitter at Assiders, or email us on podcasts at 11fs.com. And don't forget, if you do love the show, then please, please, please leave it one of those reviews because we really do like reading them. Uh, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and now on Periscope every week. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.